it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest edition of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Fresh off a great weekend, I hope, from your perspective. This hour, we're going to join by Politico, be joined by Politico's Josh uh, Crashauer, is also a Fox News contributor. In studio, if you're smart enough to get Fox Nation, another reason to keep it, Will Hurd's here, former congressman, CIA guy, cybersecurity executive. So he's in studio, so we'll get a chance to go uh, inside a myriad of topics. So let's, before we go any further, as the president gets set to meet with the Mexican president and then with the uh, America's conference let's get to the big three now with the stories you need to know it's brian's big three number three harry speaks writes and releases his book the firm stays silent the allegations about his family racism and the press are devastating we'll see where we go for here number two Finally, on his agenda, the border. The president spent three hours in a sanitized El Paso. What does it mean for that conference we just discussed? And Republicans are saying, why didn't you ask me to come? I'll explain. Number one. Five days, 15 ballots, and finally Kevin McCarthy becomes Speaker of the House. Now that he got the job, he now has to do the job. The first hurdle, get his entire conference to sign off on the deal that he signed off on on Friday night at about 11.58. Will Hurd? With all your years of experience and all your firsthand experience and and years of observation, have you ever seen anything like uh, what just took place over the last fifteen days? Uh, absolutely not, and and unfortunately, uh, it's it's not what the American public wants. You know, the the message from the twenty uh, twenty two midterm elections was we want common sense people to solve real problems that we're having, and when we get get stuck on process, it ultimately hurts America. So, a couple of things. Uh, Congressman, the one thing I kind of like, uh, 12 appropriations bills instead of an omnibus sure. bill. Okay, fine. Uh, when it comes to the Rules Committee, uh, do I need to know two or three Freedom Caucus members? Probably I don't. I did not know that that one vote to vacate uh, was so important. You were saying before, why do people need to know all about this? To me, I like that the doors were open. I like that the C-SPAN cameras were let loose to go see these arguments. But I, what were they doing for three, four weeks Right. All of these conversations were happening since uh, no, the November election. And, and here's, the, here's the weird thing about how Congress works. Um, things that have, you've been having conversations on for weeks or months sometimes get sorted out in minutes when it gets down to the floor. Uh, Congress, unfortunately, only operates when, when there's a deadline, and that's what we even, saw. Even in last caucus, time. even amongst members on the same party? All of these debates and conversations have been known. Um, what those kind of 20 held out, holdouts, um, and I, I would say they were the minority of, of the caucus, um, you knew what their, what their concerns were, and they had been articulating these for a while. Um, I think ultimately what happened was people want to see this was a game of chicken and who was going to blink. Why do you think it's okay to be a minority leader and get 100% of the vote every time? 
And what changes when you're a speaker? I know you get more power theoretically in, in reality, mm-hmm. but still, he was your man to lead. Look, for sure. But, but the difference is that minority leader is a majority of the conference. Speaker, you have to get 218 votes on the floor. And so when you do not have a big majority, um, that becomes even more difficult. And, and that's what we saw play out. And, and I would say C-SPAN is on 24-7, right? And so if people liked uh, watching what was really going but on, they never had, had that access. access. Evidently, there's no rules in place. To play. The Republicans will put the rules in place to tell the C-SPAN cameras where to go. With all hell broke, breaking loose, <laughs> nobody was able to lasso C-SPAN. And I don't necessarily think it was bad. I mean, I like to I you lived it. But to see Kevin McCarthy go up and tell Matt Gates basically, what the hell are you doing? Right. We had a deal. Right. And then he came back and said, I don't know what you're talking about. So just to show you that uh, I think in the long run, I'm curious to see what you think, it could be better. I think they got to know each other for the first time. I actually think they got to know the other side for the first time. So you guys, I heard, don't really talk to each other anymore. Well, so, so yes, like what you see, here, here is my experience, right? I, I had 22 pieces of legislation passed and signed into law in six years. That's more than most people do in three decades. And the only way you do that is by engaging with your colleagues. And so when, when there was floor votes... That's the one time all members are there, and that's when you get a lot of work done. And so that kind of behavior happens. Um, for the last two years, you haven't seen that as much. Why? Because um, we're because, remote voting. Yeah, we, we weren't voting. People weren't in place. Also, uh, the, the remnants of the January 6th, and people, people discussed it about you know, who did what and didn't do what. Um, and so, so that prevented that kind of interaction. So now the fact that people are going to be in person, uh, you have to come down to the floor. Those things are good. And I wish Kevin McCarthy uh, the best. I hope you like him. I, I do. I think he's. I think he's a he's he's a good man. Um, but ultimately, this is what what we need to see. Is and that, like you said, at the top of the show, it's time to do the job. And it's and it's it's not enough just to complain about the other people. You have to put forward a a position on this is what we sh- think should happen. Right. We need to pass a, a, a budget. We should have the twelve appropriations bills. A- agree with with that. Uh, we need to make sure what are our solutions on how we solve border security. What I couldn't believe is Republicans were saying, "Well, we're going to agree not to increase the uh, Pentagon budget." Really, if you don't have Republicans going about for defense, we're all doomed because Absolutely. within. Inflation, it's, that is a decrease. 100%. Look, the, the, the issues that we're facing, I, I, I've been, I've, I don't know if the right word is fortunate to, to see our enemies up close and personal. I saw that when I was in the intelligence community, when I was in Congress, and now in the private sector. And we have about a decade to get our act together to prevent our enemies from trying to, t- to take us over. And part of our strategy has take to be— Take us over? You mean take— well, t- take, us, take, take, us, take over our position in the rest of the world is, is, is what I meant. Uh, you look at the Chinese government. They're trying to surpass the United States as a global superpower. The only way we can, we can prevent that from happening, from them doing things like invading China, is having a robust and strong military. That has been an important part of our strategy of becoming the global superpower— that, and, and why should we care? Because that has allowed this, 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 this global order we have created has benefited America, has made America the greatest place to live, has made our way of life uh, the, the, the envy of the rest of the world. And it's just such narrow-mindedness when you hear people say, let's worry about what we have here. Don't worry about 
What are you talking about? It all is affected. You want to lose our currency as being the world currency? Do you want to lose our influence? You saw what happened. China's starting to to get these countries with their Belt and Road program mm-hmm. and build ports around there and airports. And when they can't make the payments, they keep it. Uh, right now, they're having trouble paying their own bills. They got some issues. But I just before anyone thinks that they've turned the page, today they vote on the rules that they agreed sure. on. And evidently, Nancy uh, Nancy Mace and Congressman Gonzalez of Texas said, yeah, I'm not going with this. They so-called – I think they call themselves moderates, but they said they represent a moderate community anyway. But listen to this. Cut six. Matt Gates is a fraud. Every time he voted against Kevin McCarthy last week, he sent out a fundraising email. Uh, what you saw last week was a constitutional process diminished by those kinds of political actions. Um, I don't support that kind of behavior. I am very concerned as someone who represents uh, a lot of centrists, a lot of independents. I have as many independents and Democrats as I have Republicans in my district. I have to represent everybody. So we get inside her point of view. It's hard. I was so frustrated to see him go on Sean Hannity at 9 o'clock at night and said, I've run out of things to ask for. I got everything I wanted. So you haven't announced me. He goes, you'll see. And then he misses his name in alphabetical order. And then he has to have anybody who missed because they missed your name. Right. You come back at the end to dramatize your vote. And it's present. And down goes the 14th round. I mean, you could imagine wanting to choke him out as you saw the Congressman Rogers try to do. Look, this is far from kumbaya being sung this morning in in Republican conference, and there's going to be long-term ramifications. And, yes, people may have gotten to know each other better, but also people have gotten a little bit more pissed off with one another. And here was one of the most um, uh, frustrating things when I was in Congress. Uh, People knew when I was a yes, I was a yes. When I'm a no, I'm a no. Right. And and if I didn't know at the time, I'll get back to you when when you're ready. Um, This this double dealing that happens is so frustrating because you expect when you look somebody in the eye and say, hey, this is what we're going to do. This is what you're going to get. You expect them um, to to return the favor. And unfortunately, um, there are many in 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 politics that that don't follow through on that. Yeah. And by the way, Congressman Rogers uh, did take a run at him and he said, I have a uh, he did apologize. I have a long and productive Working relationship with with uh, Gates, I'm sure we will continue. I regret that I briefly lost my temper and so on. But I just thought it was interesting. By the way, you know how many votes Nancy Pelosi got last time? 216. Yeah. So Kevin McCarthy actually got more votes with the same distance between the Republicans and Democrats, but he did it behind closed doors. But guess what she gave up? Uh, she gave up uh, the, the, the gavel. She right. promised that she was going to leave. So... All that stuff was done behind closed doors. I guess it was indeed possible. I'm not saying you want a house like that anyway. Congressman, other, uh, a couple of more issues I'd like to discuss with you. You can stick around? Absolutely. Great. Uh, and then we'll take some calls, one 408 And also at the bottom of the hour, Josh Kroshauer will in here and talk about where we go from here. Because the former president of the United States picked up the phone, and he was effective in the final lap to, to take a lot of the people that like him and tell them, Enough with uh, a left with the nose. We need to get to a yes. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. 
Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I think we can say pretty conclusively after looking at tens of thousands of emails over the course of these weeks that the government was in the censorship business in a huge way. That's, I think, provable now. And not just one agency, really every conceivable wing of the enforcement uh, agencies of the U.S. government were in some way or another sending moderation requests to Twitter. And in many cases, those requests were being fulfilled. And they were coming from everywhere, from every place, from the NSA to the HHS to FBI, DHS, even what they call other government agencies, which I think is code for the CIA. So we have reports from all over, from states, from police departments, everywhere. That was Matt Taibbi, who was asked by Elon Musk to go through the communications between the uh, the intelligence agencies and the social media platform that he bought. And he goes on to say that he's, he says, I've spent my whole life voting Democrat being a somewhat of a liberal journalist. And I cannot believe there's just almost no interest in these revelations because it's really concerning for any journalist. This is unbelievable for a journalist to mind this. So with me right now is Will Hurd, former Texas congressman, cybersecurity executive, and an officer in the CIA, author of American Reboot, so we understand politics, intelligence, and everything. From you weren't fo- you haven't been following this as close. Almost no one in this country is. From what he just said, what do you think? Well, it, there's definitely enough to conduct oversight to see what ultimately happened and why were these requests being made within federal law enforcement uh, to private companies. But also, I want to see. Why were these private companies making some of these decisions uh, based on this? What were the motivations with internally uh, within Twitter to either comply or not to comply? And what rules do they have? What makes the United States different from any other country is our intelligence services and our federal law enforcement for services have civilian oversight. That's why we have oversight committees, and you, I, you can bet that when Jim Jordan becomes chairman of Judiciary Committee, right. uh, there is going to be oversight and, and attention focus on this. And, and for me, as someone who's proud to have come out of the intelligence community, um, we need to make sure that we're holding ourselves to high standards. And the other thing is the with, with the pandemic. So Jay Bacciara, not a nothing to do with Republican or Democrat, an esteemed doctor from Stanford, said, I got a huge problem with the way we're handling some of the protocols with uh, with the pandemic from the masks on down. I have a huge problem with some of the people that are getting vaccines from that. Mm-hmm. Regardless of what you think, he's very qualified. You cannot suspend him sure. because the government has a different view than the Stanford doctor, correct? No, absolutely. And and that and that's, that is why uh, we need to have some sunlight on this issue to know exactly what was going on, why these requests were being made, what were the process. You know, is this someone – was this some low-level employee that's trying to make a name for him or herself in the company – or was it senior levels, um, mm-hmm. senior leadership of, of the organization? And, if and these are all things that should, we, should, we should explore. And one thing, if Twitter, you know, you're a Twitter executive and you're getting a call from the CIA and FBI and they say, you know, I'm telling you what to do, but I'm telling you what, we, what I like to see happen. 
you understand the intimidation that comes with that, right? Sure, but but we also have uh, examples of pushback, right? And I would always point to Apple on that when it comes to backdoors of encryption. Um, the case in wouldn't it have been great to get the pushback here? Sure, and and that and that's that's what's great about America is that a private company right. should be able to push back um, uh, against their government, and 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 that's why understanding the decision making that was happening in Twitter on why they were you know agreeing with or not agreeing, and are there other requests that people right. had made that that weren't uh, that those those accounts weren't taken down. Right. If if someone said, well, we can go into that. The Fauci files are going to get released this week, so I'll have you back. Mm-hmm. The only thing not on your resume is journalist. But if you okay. are a journalist and Elon Musk called up and said, I want to give you this communication, it shouldn't matter who you voted for. This is this is it's like going the NFL called. They need you in the game. Even right. if you grew up a Jets fan, the Giants need you. You're in the league. I just thought it was crazy. So the other big story is the board of the president went down there. Uh, Tony Gonzalez met with the president on, with Uvalde after that tragedy and said, listen, when you come to the border, call me. Listen to what he said happened. Cut 33. When I try to be part of uh, this uh, El Paso uh, visit, which I represent El Paso, I represent 50, uh, nearly 50 percent of the southern border. The White House told me I wasn't I wasn't able to be part of it. Why? What does that mean? That means that means that Democrats are using this as a polit- they think this is a political challenge, not a policy challenge. Clearly, the, you know, you see these images a couple of weeks ago of hundreds of people in a cell. That's not a political challenge. That is a policy challenge. So that's he's a Republican. And in- I don't know how you know him, right? Yeah. A military guy. Yeah. So he's flabbergasted. And I asked him again this morning about this. Your thoughts? Well, this is the district I used to represent. And, and so uh, the, the fact that the, the president comes down and doesn't include other members of the opposing party, of the opposition party, in, the, in, the, in, in his talks um, is unacceptable, in my opinion. It also shows that the president doesn't recognize the seriousness of this problem. How about Colin Henry Cuellar? I mean, at, 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 at a minimum, at, 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 a, but at this a minimum. Is, but how you ask Mitch McConnell to show up at a bridge unveiling and you say, talk about bipartisanship. Well, now we got a chance for you to show it. Absolutely. And and, and he failed. And, and this is this is ultimately uh, probably going to be one of the biggest failures of, of Joe Biden's uh, presidency. Um, also, the fact that I, I think you used it in the opening, the san- he saw a sanitized version of what happened in El Paso. The fact that the Mexican president deployed additional troops to the northern Mexico border to prevent people from running across the while, he's there. While, while he's there, I hope during the conversations that the president's having with with, pres- with the Mexican president, Lopez Obrador, that he says, hey, continue to do that forever, not just when I'm in, in, in the vicinity. Unfortunately, look, the people at the border are scared. The communities along the border do not have the resources to continue to bear the brunt of this crisis. And the the federal government and the Biden administration is making it worse. And so so what we saw of the president walking down the the border wall, um, that is not reality of what thousands of people are living every single day. It starts with understanding this is a crisis, calling it a crisis. The people that got us into this problem are not going to be the same people that be able to get us out of this problem. Right. And, and so a, a lot of change needs to happen. Uh, Congressman, always great to have you. And Congressman Will Hurd, it's just real leadership would have attacked a real problem. And he's got another two years to another election. This would have been the time. But it's not over yet. Will Hurd, thank you so always much. Always a pleasure.
the talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Early on in that week, before we take it a single vote, you know, in a, in a in a conference with everyone there, Kevin McCarthy had asked one of the leaders of this group, you know, what else do you want? Let's just make this work. What else do you want? And they couldn't answer in that moment, and that was a real turning point for a lot of people. That was what created all of that animosity throughout the week. Because it's not as if we were fighting over something. It wasn't as if we were trying to stop them from getting something that they wanted. It's that we didn't know what they wanted. That's Dan Crenshaw. So frustrating. And he was talking to me before the first vote. You can imagine how frustrated he was by the last vote. He did apologize for saying and being misinterpreted, calling these people that were holding out terrorists. But he meant to say terrorizing the arrest of the group, and people took it wrong. So he walked it back because he wants to be uh, chairman of Homeland Security, I believe, and he's going to find out today from the steering committee. Joining us now is Josh, uh, Josh Kreischauer, senior political correspondent, Axios, Fox News contributor. Josh, welcome back. Great to be back on the show, Brian. Uh, Josh, first off, uh, you must, as much as uh, you might be frustrated as an American, as a reporter, this must have been heaven for you. This is the type of drama that we were able to see in front because the C-SPAN cameras had no rules. We were able yeah. to see this in real life. Normally, we get one reporter like you with great sources telling us what was going on behind the closed doors, and they'd come out and deny everything, anything happened. Not this time. Yeah, Brian, I'm usually one of the few people that likes being on the Hill and, and, and talking to all the different members and assessing their sort of political situations. But this was high drama the biggest soap opera you'll see in, in, in a long time on the House floor with the cameras uh, rolling. Um, look, I, 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 I don't, this could be just the kind of appetizer for what's to come over the next couple of years because this Republican Party, it's no secret, there, there are a lot of different factions, there are a lot of different cliques uh, within that, that disagree on, on a lot of very substantive issues. And McCarthy is someone who's good at telling people what they want to hear at, 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 at getting a big tent and getting people from, you know, someone like uh, Brian Fitzpatrick, one of the bigger moderates in the Republican caucus in the same space as a uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. But even that wasn't enough to kind of get an easy vote and, you know, to deal with some of the last minute holdouts. Uh, so he's going to be speaker. It was a 15 pallet process, a big high drama. Uh, but I don't know if it's going to get easier for Kevin McCarthy going forward. Well, we're going to find out. I mean, once they get to work, at least you know where everyone stands. Uh, one thing is pretty clear, the investigation is going to take place, and the border is an issue that uh, the, that, uh, the president of the United States is always polled, and justifiably so, terribly on. Right now it's at 38 percent, according to CBS, and that's generous. I don't know who those 38 percent are. Uh, what about him going to the border? Did he achieve what he wanted to achieve and what seems to be more photo op than real opportunity to see what was really going on? Yeah, so I, first off, just going to the border is not going to solve the underlying problems. Uh, this is a political uh, issue more than a substantive one right now for, for, for the White House. They haven't really dealt with the substance. They did pr- offer some, some uh, uh, changes that could allow them to deport certain migrants in a more efficient way using Title 42, which is a shift from where they were last year. But look, I, I, I look at this trip to the border on Sunday – uh, as a as a check the box exercise in preparation for uh, 2024 reelection campaign, I, I, you know I, I find it remarkable that Biden uh, didn't ever visit the border. Uh, this was the first time he visited the U.S. Mexico border as president, and it was a problem. It was ever, an issue that ever came up period. On, he never ever did as period. vice president or senator. And 
it was an issue that came up on you know, covering all these Senate races. That was one of the issues where Democrats were running away from Biden as, as quickly as possible. So but the White House knows that they can't uh, continue to see the number of illegal crossings on the border exponentially grow as they've been. They knew they know they need to change policies. They know it's not sustainable politically. There, there are enough moderates in their own party, including the congressman that represents that neck of the woods, Henry Cuellar, that were speaking out against against where the White House was. But, you know, I don't know if there's going to be that many fundamental changes, Brian, because you still have a lot of progressives on Capitol Hill. You've got a lot of activist groups that are cry, crying foul and holding uh, the White House's feet to the fire. And, and, and they're, they're you know, if you look at their track record, they still try to pander to a lot of these groups rather than making the, the right decision to help, uh, right. you know, create some sense of border security there. And Josh, and you point out that the president didn't have to disavow himself from the left wing in order to do OK in the midterms, even though he lost the House. Right. So he, he his lesson isn't I have to run away from the squad. He just I don't have to make that my policy, but I don't have to distance myself from it. Do you think that's the right takeaway? I always think politics has something to do with when, when, a, when a president or anyone, for that matter, makes a 180 on, on a position. Uh, and, and look, they're, they're, they're national security folks in this administration that wanted the president to get more serious about the border. But ultimately, we're getting closer to a reelection, and, and the, all, all indications are that this president wants to run for a second term. And this was his biggest vulnerability, Brian. You mentioned the polling. It's his worst. Uh, it's, his, it's his most vulnerable uh, policy, where he was uh, getting creamed in a lot of these these, these elections. And uh, uh, you know, you had Mark Kelly, an Arizona senator, who was running away from Biden on this issue. New Hampshire senator Maggie Hassan during the, ele- the election distanced herself from the White House. So you know, this was unsustainable. The question is, though, w- w- do they follow through with this? A visit is one thing. Mm-hmm. Changing policy, trying to be tougher. Uh, in, in terms of your border security policies, that's another issue. Well, yeah, he, he would actually, I think, strengthen himself uh, by strengthening the border. But um, let's, uh, let's talk about this. Let's talk about 2024. It looks like an, he's all in. Uh, by all reports, it looks like Joe Biden is all in for another run. He decided that, if you're to believe the reports from people like you, uh, on vacation. And now Kevin McCarthy made it clear that Donald Trump, and we saw the phone being passed around uh, well, uh, with him with him on the other end uh, in the last minutes. Listen to what, uh, what now Speaker McCarthy said after winning the gavel. Cut one. But I do want to especially thank uh, President Trump. I don't think you should doubt, anybody should doubt his influence. He was with me from the beginning. Somebody wrote the doubt of whether he was there, and he was all in. He would call me and he would call others. And uh, he really was, I was just talking to him tonight, um, Helping get those final votes. So, and I wonder what your thoughts were, because if you want to be anti-Trump or just say that, no, here's your case. He was for McCarthy, and he still took 15 rounds. And if you want to be pro-Trump, you could say, in the end, he was working the phones with the people that he knew were holding out. He knew them well, from Andy Biggs to Matt Gates to Boebert, and helped deliver the, I guess, present votes. Yeah, I mean, maybe he helped those final few votes, um, the, the, the holdouts vote present instead of voting against McCarthy, which allowed McCarthy to become speaker. But, you know, look, Trump did endorse McCarthy and, 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 and tweeted or truth, posted on Truth Social about it days earlier, and it didn't, didn't make um, much of an impact. And you even had one of the holdouts, Matt Rosendale, 
ignoring Marjorie Taylor Greene's pleas. With the, she, she was holding the phone with the president on the line, and he did not want to take the call. He didn't want to even listen to her. So you know, I, I, I think the president's impact was minimal. It's obviously in McCarthy's interest to, to give some credit to, to President Trump. But this is a Hill issue. I don't think Trump uh, – he never really engaged all that much uh, in, in hand-to-hand combat when, when he was president. Uh, on, on Capitol Hill, and I don't really think he had a whole lot of clout with those members who like him, who support him, uh, who's dis- he's very popular in their districts. But ultimately, this was not about presidential politics. It was about all the all the uh, mumbo-jumbo going on on Capitol Hill. So when people start thinking about a rematch, they have to say, well, Trump is already in, even though he hasn't done anything after announcing. And now it looks like Joe Biden's back. So Chris Christie, who might be a candidate himself and certainly knows the process, and he's very astute politically, he said this about how big the field will be and what we can expect will happen, Cup 54. In fact, I think this is going to be a slow-moving race and not a quickly-moving one. I think what Donald Trump did by declaring really early was give anybody else who's considering it a pass to wait and see how things go. Uh, And so I don't think it's going to be very quickly-moving, and I also don't think it's going to be a very large field. I don't think it's going to be more than seven or eight people max. And so all that's going to take time to develop. I wouldn't expect a field to fully develop until the end of June because the RNC has said the first debates are going to be in July in Milwaukee. And I don't think anybody's going to feel any compulsion to get in. Yeah, but number one, I didn't even know they were participating in events. So what are your thoughts about Christie's theory? It's interesting. I actually think there'll be more than seven or eight candidates, but maybe there won't be more than seven or eight serious candidates. If you look at the polls, there are two, two, two elephants in the room, and it's Trump and it's DeSantis. And I don't think this race is fully going to develop until DeSantis makes his, his final decision. And I don't think that's – I've talked to folks in his, his, in his orbit. And, uh, you know, I don't think that's going to come until after the Florida legislative session is over in May or June. So, you know, they're, 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 he's right that this is going to take some time. This field is going to take take its time to develop. Look at how strong Trump is. I think that's the biggest question right now. A lot of Republicans want to see is Trump vulnerable. There are a lot of polls showing he's at his weakest position, perhaps since when he first ran for president in 2015. And if that continues, if he doesn't have the clout that he looked that he had as president, that may uh, encourage a lot of Republicans to get in and make this. A, a pretty crowded field. So I agree with Christie that um, it's going to take a little time to develop. I, but I do think there are going to be quite a few Republicans running for office, at least at first. All right. So uh, this week, we're going to today, we're going to find about the steering committee. Is there going to be any punishments for anything that happened? For example, there's a lot of people who are just basically ready to step into their chairmanships and their subcommittee roles. Do you, aside from Byron Donald saying he's going to be on the steering committee and that's one of the deals he got, what else do you think we should expect today besides surprises? Well, one of the big developments just breaking, uh, I think Politico reported this this morning, uh, Mike Rogers, who if you remember, he was the guy who was uh, going after Matt Gates, uh, getting his kind of hair pulled back by uh, Kevin or by uh, Patrick McHenry. Uh, he, he's not going to have a chairmanship and that he, he, he's stepping down from serving on the, the Republican steering committee. So, um, that, that is a big, big, big punishment or a big loss. And, uh, that, that may be the first shoot to fall in, in this drama that's continuing in, on Capitol Hill today. Well, that's interesting. Uh, we'll see where that goes. Uh, so the president of the United States is going to be in the, I guess, conference of the Americas. In the backdrop of that is the arrest of El Chapo's uh, the the arrest of El Chapo's son and the cartels just blowing up everything they can. This could be disastrous, but it's also emblematic of what 
critics of his border policy have been saying. Cartels have taken it over. They're making billions, even more than they do in drugs through human trafficking, and they've become more powerful than the Mexican government. Right. Yeah, no, that's right, Brian. And uh, you remember when uh, vi- the vice president, Kamala Harris, was supposed to be the point person for dealing with the countries, for dealing with that with the, those same issues, and you don't see her uh, playing that active of a role, if, if, if any at all, uh, at this point in time. So that, that is, I guess, technically her portfolio to deal with, with those, those issues. The president's going to be addressing some of that uh, today. But, yeah, I mean, this has not been – uh, a concerted focus, and it, it's causing uh, certainly political problems for the White House. Hey, Josh, always great to talk to you. Uh, we'll look forward to the next story you break, because uh, now we have to see if it's going to be business as usual, uh, at least in the House. Josh, thank you. Thanks, Brian. Josh Krauschauer with uh, Axios. When we come back, I'll take your calls. First time today. I know you've had a lot to say, because there's so much took place this week, let alone with something else, what's happening in Brazil. Uh, Bolsonaro uh, basically lost an election And everyone says, well, he's like Trump and he's bad. He's not bad. What he was is very much like Trump and he was very anti-China and he was very pro-American. And the guy that's in charge now is a criminal that would be in jail if it wasn't for a technicality whose political idol is Fidel Castro. And there was a raid on the Capitol in Brazil. Bolsonaro's in in Florida somewhere. I think he did go to Mar-a-Lago at one point. People are asking for him to be expelled. It means a lot to us. We could lose the whole, uh, all of South America to China and to Russia and to Iran if we don't step up. And this is not good news for anyone. But thinking that Bolsonaro is a bad guy is really short-sighted. You're getting bad information. Listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. We'll talk about that and so much more when we come back. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. You wrote, I even wanted Camilla to be happy. Maybe she'd be less dangerous if she was happy. Mm-hmm. How was she dangerous? Because of the need for her to rehabilitate her image. That made her dangerous? That made her dangerous because of the connections that she was forging within the British press. And with her on the way to being Queen Consort, there was going to be people or bodies left in the street because of that. Uh, Prince Harry gave his first interview last night to 60 Minutes and then gave another one today to Good Morning America. And, of course, he got paid a ton of money, millions of dollars, to write this book called Spare, which means spare. In case something happens to a bunch of people, you'll become king. And that's what he was known as, the spare. He was also well-liked. I think the numbers were about 80% approval rating by the time he was marrying to Meghan. He was one of the guys. He served admirably in the military, uh, realistically, an Apache uh, pilot which is pretty impressive, but then things have gone right, uh, wrong since he married uh, Megan. Normally, um, this is the one part of the royal family I'm actually interested in, just because I feel like we all watched him and his brother grow up. Turns out they never liked each other. According to him, in the, when they finally got together to hang out, they, when he said, uh, his brother walked up to him and says, we don't know each other in school. He's like, really? This is the only time we're going to be in high school together. He goes, we don't know each other. And then he never really came to grips with his mom's death. That's understandable. When she dies at a young age, never quite understood it, expected to come back. To me, this is what came across. And I'll play another cut in a second. What came across to me is he absolutely believes and experienced everything that he experienced. I don't think his wife put him up to it, as everyone's been saying. But to go out, just can anyone understand that after your book comes out 
and you write about yourself from Katie Couric on down, there's another day. And then afterwards, and you make your book sales and you have your money and taxes are coming out of a lot of it, 50 percent. You got to say to yourself, where do I go from here? I mean, what good is it to say you believe the, the, the British press is racist and most of the royal family? Really? Now, is that true? Are you sure it's true? Is it worth bringing up? Is this something you could have handled? And what are the ramifications of me saying it? It doesn't seem like he understands the magnitude of what he's saying. And when it came to Camilla, evidently she used the press and said, hey, listen, stop writing bad things about me. and I'll give you inside information on what's happening with the family. That's why they thought she was dangerous. On losing his royal title, cut 40. Why not renounce your titles as Duke and Duchess? And what difference would that make? Why be so public? Why reveal conversations you've had with your father or with your brother? Every single time I've tried to do it privately, there have been briefings and leakings and planting of stories against me and my wife. You know, the family motto is never complain, never explain. But it's just a motto. So the other big story was why even uh, did why write things that, you know, are going to be hurtful, even if they're true. Cut 41. None of any thing that I've written and anything I've included is ever intended to hurt my family. But it does give a full picture of the situation as we were growing up and also squashes this idea that somehow my wife was the one that destroyed the relationship between these two brothers. Right. Uh, he's done it himself. And put it this way, if all that stuff was true, there probably would have been a better way to approach it. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that the way he left and the way he came back with his, for his grandmother's funeral, and now I guess his dad has got a coronation to become king. Did you think when you wrote this book, they'd say to yourself, I got a lot. I got private security. I was able to leave the country. You do the Oprah interview. Then you write the book. Then you do the series. And you say, I never attempted to hurt anyone. I'm just going to tell all the secrets of the family, most of which make him look good and them look bad. I never intended to hurt anybody. You can have it every way. Listen, it's it's going to be a great read. It's good television. It's very intriguing. But if you think that this isn't going to be detrimental to the rest of your life, you really are an idiot. But he's going to sell a lot of books. I hope he's happy. Brian Kilmeade Show. Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hey, we are back. Yes, back after what I hope was a great weekend for you uh, and was for me. Uh, Of course, I'll take any weather that's not sub-zero in the New York area, even though it was rainy absolutely all weekend long. Michael Goodwin uh, has has been intrigued. Uh, and entrenched in what was going on with the drama in the in the quest for a speaker. Doug Collins was able to be my secret informant along the way, predicting almost to a T exactly what was going to take place, believe it or not, with the Republican caucus. He knows uh, quite well. So we have a lot to discuss, and it looks like we could be having the framework of a rematch, a framework of a rematch of 2020. I'm not, no joke, Biden against Trump seems like they're both ready to go in. Uh, the president of the United States uh, was in El Paso yesterday. Today's in Mexico City. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. None of anything that I've written, anything I've included, is ever intended to hurt my family. Oops, but it does. Harry speaks, writes, and releases 
His book, The Firm, Stays Silent. The allegations about his family racism in the press, devastating. He even alienated himself with the military. After what he exposed about his days at war. I'm sure the book will sell, but what happens after that? Number two. The Biden administration does not want America to see the chaos that the Biden administration's policies uh, have imposed. He needs to talk to the thousands of Texans who live on the border, whose lives have been destroyed by Joe Biden's policies. Greg Abbott making himself a presence in the president's visit to El Paso. Finally on his agenda, the border. The president spends three hours in sanitized El Paso. What did he see? What did he hear? And what will he say at the Summit of the Americas today in Mexico City? Republicans expect nothing and be prepared to do everything and anything it takes to seal the border. Number one. But I do want to especially thank uh, President Trump. I don't think you should doubt, anybody should doubt his influence. He was with me from the beginning. Somebody wrote the doubt of whether he was there, and he was all in. Uh, that is Ken McCarthy, Speaker Ken McCarthy. Five days, 15 ballots, and finally McCarthy becomes Speaker. Now that he got the job, he has to do the job. The first hurdle, getting his entire conference to accept the rules and the deal he cut. The question is, are Republicans stronger or weaker after this debate? And I'll pose that to my next guest. He's the esteemed columnist from the New York Post, Fox News contributor Michael Goodwin. Uh, Michael, are they stronger or weaker after this huh. five well, days? Uh, thank you, Brian. Look, it certainly looked. Uh, like a weak moment for Kevin McCarthy last week. I think the, you know, as you say, the 15 votes, I mean, it's it's extraordinary. It's not the, the most ever, but it's the most in a very long time. And uh, look, my, my chief complaint about all this is why wasn't this done in the two months since the election? Uh, Republicans knew it was a very small margin. It wasn't a red wave, yet it was a majority. So why didn't they work this out? Why did they have to waste a week of, of precious time on this? And I think, frankly, embarrass themselves and embarrass the party and make it seem as though they are too divided to govern. Now, whether that's a fact or just an impression created by the chaos of last week, we'll soon know. I you know, these, as you say, these rules that have to be approved, I don't know, for example, the one that, that any one member of Congress, uh, including Democrats, can effectively trigger a vote to see if McCarthy keeps his job seems to me a bit foolish. Now, it's, it, that rule did exist before, but it, uh, I wouldn't put it past Democrats uh, using it mischievously anytime they don't want Republicans to do something such as investigate Joe Biden or the border or any of those issues, somebody could stand up and invoke that clause and everything would have to stop, presumably, while they take a vote to see whether McCarthy should remain speaker. So that would require all virtually all Republicans to be there, to be present, uh, to vote for him. So that could gum up the works all by itself. So we don't know specifically what all the other rules were, but that one itself seems to be a real tripwire that could undo or prevent a lot of the investigations that the Republicans have promised to carry out. Yeah, I want you to hear what Dan Bishop, one of the last holdouts, was when he was on with Meet the Press over the weekend. Cut 11. Let me ask you this. Do you feel, in the words of Matt Gates, that Kevin McCarthy is in a straitjacket? Not in the not in the slightest. What we've done by doing the hard work up front, and again, this work began with proposals for rules, changes, 
that those of us who worked on this began back in July. And it took a long time before the dialogue could begin. But members throughout the conference have celebrated those provo uh, proposals for the, in the main. Now, you mentioned one, the motion to vacate the chair. You suggest that we demanded something new. No, that's been in the rules. That's been in parliamentary law in the United States for, since the country began until Pelosi eliminated it at the beginning of the last Congress. We simply uh, undid the, the trampling upon tradition in the House that Nancy Pelosi had engaged in. So... Uh, I, I just take a different view, okay. I think, Chuck, than you about whether this is good or bad. And I just wanted to get his perspective in, and we'll see how smooth it goes today when the rules, because Mason Gonzalez, both moderates, said, I'm not voting for these new rules, and we don't know how much of a, a margin they have. Right. And then we don't know who's going to get punished for the stances they took or the things they said, if anybody, when it comes to the steering committee putting, putting uh, chairmanships out there. But your thought on his explanation. Well, look, I... That may be the history of it, but, but I think we live in a different time uh, where the Democrats remain united, and so they have nothing to lose. It's not like they're, they're going to lose their own uh, minority, a uh, big minority, over anything, because the, the way they voted, 112 in lockstep every time for Hakeem Jeffries, I think was, a, was an ominous warning for, for Republicans that you are not going to get any help from the Democrats. They, there, there, is a, there is a feeling of war between right. the parties, and I think Republicans are going to have to do these things on their own, unfortunately. And, Michael, but I'll tell you, I, if, if Jeffries. If I could just say quickly yeah. about, about some of the other changes, if there is a change to the budget-making process, then that's a good thing. I, uh, that, that would be a, a, a close to a regular order where you have to go through an appropriate, the 12 different appropriation processes, no more omnibus, big bills, middle of the night, no time to read them, no time to debate them, no time to amend them. If that is fixed, that's very good news, but it still remains to be seen whether they can actually put that into practice because the Senate is now stuck still in this omnibus mentality, yep. both Republicans and Democrats. Yeah, I mean, it's true. Uh, we'll see what happens where the most pressure will be. I just couldn't believe the biasness on uh, what I saw with George Stephanopoulos saying things like the Dorm report produced nothing. Uh, and then, of course, questions like this when it comes to the investigations. All these personal investigations that they're doing into Trump, all the ridiculous, uh, the Russian hoax. So James Comer is now going to do these investigations. So he's on Meet the Press. Listen to the question and the answer. Cut 26. If you didn't like the way the Democrats did it, it sounds like you're going to do it in the same way that they did it. How is it any better? No. very. It, I totally disagree with that. Adam Schiff always overpromised and underdelivered. He said just last week, the releasing Trump's tax returns was going to be a bombshell. I mean, there's no bombshell there. There's nothing there. Anyway, I've served on a bank board for over a decade. There's never been a developer that's paid a lot of federal income tax because of depreciation and tax credits and things like that. If the Democrats want to make people like Donald Trump pay taxes, they need to change the tax code, not the tax rate, the tax code. But with respect to what we're doing, everything that we have requested, we have evidence to back up. So, I mean, he's like, what are you doing? It just sounds personal. 
Uh, yeah, this- well, that's Chuck Todd, right? I mean, that's that's the Democratic uh, wall, and it's good for Republicans to remember that, that they are not going to get any support or any encouragement or even any credit uh, <laughs> from the Chuck Todds of the world. They, they, these are the Demo- what I call the, the, the Democrats' handmaidens. They will do whatever the party wants. They will amplify the party message. And trying to head off these investigations of Joe Biden is going to be a very big part of the Democratic media machine. They're, they are not going to give the Republicans any credit. So they're going to have to get over that. They're going to have to assume that and work from that. That's the, Expect nothing from media, and, and you will be in, I think, a better frame of mind to actually right. do these investigations and let the, let the facts speak for themselves. But the Democrats are going to attack this every step of the way. And by, that, by the Democrats, in that case, I mean the mainstream media. All right, so I, I want to see if we can get through this, uh, a couple of things now in the couple of minutes we have remaining. So, you know, the president of the United States went to the border and everyone's weighing in on what, what he saw. He spent actually a half hour with bomb-sniffing dogs going into Chevy Blazers uh, finding drugs, which you could find in any police academy in the smallest town in America. And then he walked along the border, and then he asked people in an empty center how many people usually come through here. He should have known all these numbers. But listen to the people that have his back, like Veronica Escobar, the Democrat from El Paso. should be ashamed of herself. Cut 32. The executive branch is not the only um, branch of government that needs to do its job, though. And, and I will tell you, I've worked very closely with Secretary Mayorkas. He has been phenomenal. Every idea that I have asked him to explore, he has. Are you kidding me? This is the worst secretary in the history of the country. He was forced to implement the worst policy in the history of the border. He's been phenomenal right there. How could she say that with a straight face? You know, Brian, um, about a month or so ago, I heard a, a Democrat uh, legislator from um, from Texas, I forget his name, saying something that I thought was laughable. He said, uh, we've got to have comprehensive immig- <clears throat> immigration reform, and that's what Democrats are for, and Republicans are resisting that. I thought that was the most preposterous thing I'd ever heard because of what we see at the border. Yeah, and, and yet that has now become the Democrat talking point. And that's why Biden went there, to give the impression that he's doing something about the border. It wasn't, you know, what the cameras saw wasn't so bad, of course, because it was all cleaned up before he got there. Go to Chicago, go to New York. I mean, there you'll see what the migrants situation is doing to American cities. El Paso, with a Democratic mayor, let itself be swept so the president wouldn't have to uh, see anything. You know, Brian, years ago I I heard a, a joke about uh, a bishop, a bishops from the Catholic Church. It was, uh, w- when you're a bishop, uh, you never have a bad meal and you never have to hear the truth. <laughs> it, it, was a good, it was a good joke, but I think it's true of President Biden, too. He's not hearing the truth. He's not seeing the truth. And so the cameras, when he go there, shows this cleaned-up city. Uh, the, the, the viewers will not get the truth about what is happening at the border. So I think, once again, 
the Democrats are going to give Republicans no help on the border yeah. issue. They are going to stand and say, we have to have comprehensive reform, which is a nice way of saying amnesty, amnesty, amnesty. That's what the Democrats want. And why don't we let these people vote right now? I mean, what, what, what's the holdup? Are you a bunch of racists? You don't want them to vote? Yeah, why I mean, not? That's going to be the argument. You watch. Uh, lastly, real quick, Kevin McCarthy, after getting the gavel, cut one. But I do want to especially thank uh, President Trump. I don't think you should doubt, anybody should doubt his influence. He was with me from the beginning. Somebody wrote the doubt of whether he was there, and he was all in. Your thoughts? Well, look, Trump was with him in the beginning. There seemed to be some wavering midway through. But in the end, uh, Trump came back and, and clearly was, was trying to make some calls to get some of the holdouts to vote for McCarthy. So, look, I, I don't think this changes the basic fun, uh, fact that Trump's influence in the party is not what it was and I've, I've likened him to an ice cube, Brian, in the sense that he's melting. He's still important, and he's still got power, but a little bit less today than yesterday. And I think that's the trend, and I don't see how that trend reverses itself because the president is, uh, has lost a, a lot of the support. When you look at uh, his influence on the election, for example, uh, he's, he's still strong in a multi-candidate Republican primary. But when it comes to the general election, as we saw particularly in the Senate seats, in swing states, so among swing voters in swing states, he is more of a liability than an asset, according to the 22 uh, midterms. And I think until that changes, right. his, his hold on the party will continue to slip. Right. And plus, any ex-president is not as powerful as a, a current president. So everyone knows that. Uh, and his other policy, the other thing that was going to be tough for Trump is he's going to be a lame duck the day he gets a job. Oh, and no one's, right. no one's had that one issue, nothing to do with his investigations or the way he governed. So that's another issue that if I'm running against him, I bring up. But uh, I do think I do think that this he's in the race. He's got to yet to be run. So it's not even a theory. We got two years to look at it. So it's just very curious to see what happens. You know, it'd be great just to see something, a non-self-inflicted wound. And the, the Mar-a-Lago, the Mar-a-Lago taking those records back, opening yourself up for an investigation. Uh, the phone calls with Georgia, the, the meetings with the white supremacists, those stuff, those self-inflicted wounds, Kanye West coming over. Uh, and it, the less he does that, the more he's going to be, uh, the closer he's going to be to uh, a legitimate contender again. Uh, Michael, thanks so much. My pleasure, Brian. Thank you. Uh, yeah, and uh, that's Michael Goodwin. When we come back, I'll take your calls. But keep in mind, too, what I'm saying is my point for saying those, those things were mistakes. Yesterday, over the weekend, not a mistake. Thought he played it really right. You know, you can't just tell someone what to do. You represent a constituency. But to call up and put your reputation on the line, to call up people that have had you back in the past, uh, Boebert and Gates, at first they pushed back. But again, they didn't. uh, uh, He was relentless. And they did convince people like Andy Biggs, too, uh, to vote present. All right. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here on a great Monday. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade.
information you want, truth you demand. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. So over the last uh, five days, people have been saying, for example, you know, what is the big deal about these guys hashing things out and the Freedom Caucus to get a bigger role? There isn't a big deal. My biggest problem was people that were not negotiating sincerely. And in the beginning when I had Chip Roy on on television and he was just saying, you know, we want things to change and we don't want to go for the omnibus. I'm saying, okay, well, you liked him in the minority. He didn't vote for the omnibus. He told everybody not to vote for the omnibus. He told Mitch McConnell not to support the omnibus. Why is he having this held over his head? And then he would be elusive. But on Thursday, when Chip Roy came out and nailed certain things that he wanted, and then when he came to the agreement, he delivered, I think, 15 other people who just wanted regular order, the appropriations bills. I had no problem with that. The problem I had is other people just said, I don't like Kevin. Because Matt Gates, maybe because Kevin McCarthy didn't stand up for him, maybe he believes that's the story during his uh, the sexual, accus- uh, sexual assault ac- accusations or bringing uh, young people to the country or whatever the accusation was. They felt as though Kevin McCarthy should have stood up for him. So you can't stand in the way for an entire conference party and country because you don't like the way your personal issue was handled. Bobert the same way. I mean, why she held out so she could do more TV appearances is the only thing I can conclude when she barely won to begin with. Uh, that's the stuff that bothered me. But the Chip Roy stuff didn't bother me. But overall, an organized caucus would have done this a week before. From his mouth to, to your, your ears, ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back. Doug Collins back in studio. You're hosting Outnumbered today, aren't you? I am. You're the man. Oh, we're there. We're there. You're the man in Outnumbered. I'll be on tomorrow. All right. So make sure don't use any of my good points. Okay, okay I'll try. I'll, I'll right. try to leave this out. Try not to plagiarize all my stuff. <laughs> Doug Collins is my secret source in the Georgia elections, all the runoffs, as well as here when Congress give me great insight. Because uh, of years of experience, a former ranking member of the U.S. House Judiciary Committee, author of The Clock and the Calendar. And also, uh, Doug, you mentioned me, you were on Rules Committee. Yes. So <laughs> never before has the Rules Committee got this type of publicity, but man, it should have because it's powerful. Very powerful. And, and the interesting thing is, is what's going to happen now, and this is going to be the interesting thing, is the House, the Rules Committee has always, for at least the last almost 100 years, been known as the Speaker's Committee. And it's actually the underlying call of the Speaker's Committee because the, what it does is control what comes to the floor. So it's nine to four. It's the only committee in, in the House that is actually that kind of number. No matter what the majority is, it could be a one-vote majority, still nine to four. Why? Because to get things to the floor, they're going to make sure that there's no way to stop it. Now, if you start m- sort of tinkering with that number, you put th- say as they've, they've had the change now with the rules, there's going to be three. And, again, I'm, again, you have to wonder why, except, you know, why they're wanting to put on there, except to stop, as, as Chip Roy has said, stop bad legislation. Well, the only way they stop this legislation from actually getting to the floor or stop amendments is they got a couple with the four Democrats. So it's going to make a real interesting power dynamic. If you mean if the Freedom Caucus three mm-hmm. and they say two guaranteed with one is a conservative and they think it might be Massey. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting. It, so it, so two avowed Freedom Caucus members and one that acts like one. Right, right. Well, yeah. And actually, if you look at Massey's voting record, Massey's much more conservative than most of the Freedom Caucus. So uh, that's true. <laughs> So and he does not want to fund anything to do with wars. By the way, he's uh, he's never. I don't. I do not believe it. I may. I'll, I'll be hand correct for any listener who wants to. I do not believe in, from his own principles. He's never voted for a spending bill of any kind. All right. So among the this is one of the challenges to play to your point is the so called moderates uh, on this rules package. Here's Na, here's Nancy Mace. Cut nine. 
I like the rules package. It is the most open, fair, and fiscally conservative package we've had in 30 years. I support it. But what I don't support is a small number of people trying to get a deal done or deals done for themselves in private, in secret, to get a a vote or a vote present. Uh, I don't support that. That is just what Nancy Pelosi does, and that's not what they should be doing. And so I am on the fence right now about the rules package vote tomorrow for that reason. So your thoughts on on her thoughts? It's going to be interesting. I've heard it more from, you know, you already had one gentleman, uh, Gonzalez, out of Texas, that he's not voting for the rule. Uh, all the, again, this goes back to last week. You've only got four to five. Um, I don't – right this second, this morning, they're going to vote on it tonight. I see it passing, but I could see it at four votes against it. I could see a lot of wrangling this afternoon behind the scenes. Um, because, there, look, I've talked to a lot of members and had conversations over over the years with a lot of members. This did not play with the 200 plus, and especially if you sort of go to the other end, the 40 or 50 and 60 who are in marginal districts or they're in, uh, you know, the more moderate camp. This is very much against a lot of what they've been wanting by, by a small group trying to uh, run the whole thing. Well, Rogers actually went out of Gates because he <laughs> felt as though Gates went back on his word, and he right. was on with Sean Hannity uh, hour before the vote, the 14th round, mm-hmm. and said, Sean. I got everything I wanted. I am out of requests. So he's right. like, you got to vote for it. Yeah, that's why I'm here. I just want to go. And then he goes out and he votes present. But he leaves in order to miss the G's in the yeah. alphabetical oh, order yeah, yeah. and create some drama by coming back. The key, I think that, what, doesn't, that wouldn't bother you? if oh, you. Oh, it bothered a lot of folks. And, well, and I think the interesting thing here is now we heard a story. Now, again, have to verify it being true, that – he wanted to take all the six that ended up finally voting present. The sort of the deal was before that vote, they would all vote present. Well, when they walked on the floor, Gates, Matt said for the most part, he didn't have confirmation that they all would. Well, we found out they didn't all vote present. So he had, he had walked off the floor. He had told them to adjourn before the vote. That became the crux of the whole problem. He walks on the floor basically saying, hey, we're going to get everything we want, and then say, mm, we need to adjourn because I can't get everybody together, as if he was sort of leading the, the gang. Then it got to the end. It got very heated. Well, you got to vote to adjourn. Oh, you got to vote to adjourn. So then here we go again. So why yeah. are you adjourning? So, and, and that was it because they were wanting to, I guess, hold it over to Monday, whatever you want to do it, you know, just for the, you know, get everybody together, take a breath. It needed to end. And I think that's what Matt, and, and my understanding is that, you know, there was, uh, you know, some phone calls made and, and Matt and the rest of them agreed to it. They were not happy to agree to it. You could tell by their faces they weren't happy to agree to it, but they went ahead and voted present. But it had to be personal. Listen to what Nancy May said at Cut Six. Matt Gates is a fraud. Every time he voted against Kevin McCarthy last week, he sent out a fundraising email. Uh, what you saw last week was a constitutional process diminished by those kinds of political actions. Um, I don't support that kind of behavior. I am very concerned as someone who represents uh, a lot of centrists, a lot of independents. I have as many independents and Democrats as I have Republicans in my district. I have to represent everybody. She there's no I had no problem. I thought she was great on Sunday. Just I I, put, I I enjoy the candor. Yeah, look, Nancy Mace is one of the most more whether you like it or not, one of the most forthright, you know, at least speaking her mind. Now, again, she's also bringing up something very important for a lot of members who don't do this. Okay? She's in a district she won by being very vocal about what she believes, conservative beliefs, but she's in a district that as she said a lot of independents, a lot of swing voters who don't like Chaos. They're sort of like the stock market. You ever watch the stock market? Stock market doesn't like chaos. Stock market likes even if it's bad or good. There's one way or the other. And and but she's made that very point very clear. And there's a lot of voters out here. Again, it's amazing to me that Republicans, for the most part, over the last twelve years, have brought back the speaker vote 
as being a flashpoint among our uh, grassroots and activists. And I will say this. Because he got rid of Newt. They got like, Livingston get comes in. And, oh, yeah. And then he, got, he was in a scandal. And then we got Haster. And, uh, and then Boehner comes in. He fought every day. He seemed so unhappy every day. He was <laughs> upset about uh, some type of caucus. It, it, was, it was amazing. What's really interesting is, is the Republican caucus, the Democrats to an extent, but re- really the more that Republicans over the past eight to years or so have actually internally operated more parliamentary is what you see in other like British governments. In, in other words, the groups all are under Republican, but they all keep their own sort of identities. And so it's like a coalition almost every time you go to a vote. So I want you to, here's what Susan Page said is her conclusion as USA Today political writer. Cut 24. Nancy Pelosi won with 216 votes last time around, and it was seen as a show of strength because she did it behind closed doors and without giving things up in the same way Kevin McCarthy did. I think uh, the new speaker's problem is he didn't resolve the divide in the Republican Party. He empowered the insurgents so that Scott Perry, who you just interviewed, is almost as powerful as Kevin McCarthy in this next Congress. I agree and disagree. And I think it does empower this group. They got a lot of stuff. Again, a lot of folks, though, some of the stuff that they got, which is not the big things that people talk about, are things that people wanted. Okay, not just the, the 20. There was like, you know, 175, 200, most of the members could agree to it. The, the tactics of it and then some of the other more what we'll call personal aspects of getting on committees, uh, you know, those kind of things were the, the interesting issue. A lot of the bills that they're going to ask for to be voted to the floor, again, this is, again, a problem you and I have talked about before. They're going to tell everybody they're going to vote on these bills. Right. They're, they're dead on arrival. Okay, it's great to have the vote, which I'm glad that McCarthy's going to do. The show bill, the show you, votes, but you may not actually see some of these votes actually pass. So, for example, and Doug Collins, our guest, uh, former congressman from uh, from Georgia, who's going to be on outnumbered shortly. So, Congressman, so when you say I'm going to stop, I will no, no longer finance the eighty seven thousand IRS agents. It doesn't mean they're now all off the table. Exactly right. So they'll vote for it. It'll go on a party line basis. Yep. And the the funding will no longer be for there for that part of the legislation, but. What happens, correct? Yeah, it'd be like you and I writing it down on a piece of paper here. That's it. Yeah, is it? Is, is so it? how do you defund the 87000 That's when you gotta, you know, you're you going to have to get into the actual appropriations process, and then you're going to have to find 218 votes in the House to actually have that as a part of whatever appropriations bill you pass. And then you've got to convince the Senate that you're not negotiating on that, that that's gonna, actually going to come out. So, And then the president to actually sign it. So, I mean, this is the very problem that the Republicans had from 2011 to 2000, what was it, 15. Okay, you had a Senate was Democrat and a president was Democrat. Look, it is good to say here's where we stand. Okay, but too many times we make the promises if it's going to happen, like tomorrow it's going to happen. No, it's not going to happen. They've already put that money in the bill that just passed two weeks ago. Some of that money is already on its way to hire these new uh, folks. What we ended up doing, and this is where I I believe conservatives have a hard time, we make the big 100% promise, and then when we're actually able to knock down different, like we took out eight big pieces of Obamacare. Nobody ever cared because we said we was going to get rid of Obamacare and never did. Right. So, you know, and the IRS during those times of sequester and everything else got to the lowest level it had ever been. And now, again, looking at this, you know, going backwards. Uh, So there you go. Uh, So that's probably not going to (laughs) happen. So let's talk about immigration. The president of the United States goes down to the border for the first time in his life. Uh, He's got 38 percent approving, 60 approval, according to CBS, 62 percent disapprove of the way he's handling the border. So he wants to tackle it. When I watched him there with a demonstration of a bomb sniffing dog finding 
uh, no, excuse me, a drug sniffing dog finding drugs in a car in a mock up that you'd find at any police academy in the country. And he sat there transfixed as if he never saw it before and then walked along the border. I knew I understand photo ops, but when you'd go to a hurricane, that's a photo op. Yeah. And you know what you want to do? You want to go to the worst. Yeah. And then you ask the family to stand in front of there. Yeah. There were no immigrants at all in El Paso for the first time since 1961. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, look, they did. it was like if you ever had the time when somebody calls you and say, hey, I'm coming over. I'll be there in 15 minutes. He's like, oh, no. Yeah. And so everything gets thrown in the closet. Well, everything's still in the closet right now in El Paso. In fact, it's coming out now. So they're putting the homeless back on the street. They're putting the immigrants back on the street. He didn't see any of that. What's concerning is on issues like this is, is that Joe Biden seems to be – so when you said transfixed, it's almost like he's new to every issue that he's seen. This man's been in Washington ah, for 50 yeah. years. He like, How many people wow. come through here? <laughs> this is exciting. Do you, do you think it's sincere or not? No. Fiscal year to date in 2023, 718,062. Uh, that's October through January have come through that sector. 518,000 in 2022, which is way too tough. So it's up significantly from year to year. The average daily Southwest border encounters uh, just under 7,000 mm-hmm. likely to go up. And when Mayorka says, well, this is just a historic times of my historic time of migration, biggest one since World War II. No, it's not. No, 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 it's not. And because uh, cause all you got to do is go back two or three years when we had a surge starting. I, I went to El Paso in the beginning um, of 19 and when it was, uh, that surge was coming again. Trump was, we were putting in remedies. And I was there one night. We went under, I went with the, the Border Patrol. We, we went riding with them. Actually, no cameras. No, we just went riding. We get out and we're seeing, we go by the little camp where they, where they hold them. There was three people. We ride down, I kid you not, 15 minutes one way, we start seeing them come. And we start actually pointing you know, where to come to, to, for them to be apprehended. By the time I got back, there was 150. Later on that same night was one of the largest border crosses ever at that point. There was 1,500 came across about a mile from where we were. This is it's because they believe they can yeah. come. And when Trump said, no, you can't come, and we're going to start turning you back, we're going to put you in Mexico, we're going to make you, then it actually stopped. But the minute they saw Biden, remember, what is a year or two years ago now? Golly. Uh, they had the you know shirts with Biden, or they said Biden. Thing. Biden Harris. Yeah. yeah. You know, coming up, look, this is just a joke. Uh, and I do not want to hear another Democrat. And I'd love to have a Democrat sit here because I've had to do this. Asylum has got to change. Don't tell me these folks are seeking asylum. They're coming from third world countries and other world countries because of economic conditions which are not under the qualification of asylum. How do I know that? Because the ones who actually show up to the immigration hearing, over 90 percent are denied their asylum claim. Well, we know the president of the United States is now in Mexico City. He's going to meet with President Abrador and have uh, Justin Trudeau there. And one thing he's going to be talking about, the first thing is climate change. But now you have to be talking about what's happening with the drug cartels. They arrest El Chapo's son. The cartels are at war. Starting, yep. They're blowing up everything. They might be more powerful than the government. This is on the eve of the president's arrival. Yeah. It, it, they, how, I mean, how do you talk about climate change like when this is happening? Well, it's like the unfortunately in the last little bit, especially with this administration and with the others, it's the first step out of anything. If anything's going wrong, it's climate change. And, and it's almost like it's a badge of honor. Okay, so it's, it's, you know how you like have an agenda item? Okay, we got to check. We said the pledge. We said attendance. Okay, oh, we talked about climate change. This is what it's seeming like every time he goes somewhere. And the interesting part about this is the, is the press never presses on what did you actually do about it? I mean, if it is such an agenda item, you know, what comes out of this? More conversation, more keeping it in more the More regulation. Yeah, more regulation. And, and, again, when we're regulating in other countries or not, until that actually happens, there's a problem. Right. I just, uh, I just know that he was very happy to have Mitch McConnell out there at his unveiling of a bridge in Ohio. Yeah. But when he goes down to the border, he doesn't call Henry Cuellar from his own party but a critic. And he doesn't call uh, Congressman Gonzalez, 
whose district is is represented in the area in which he's uh, there. And listen to this. He said that he went up to him in Uvalde after that tragedy and says, listen, this is my district. Um, he's been, what, 20 years yeah. in the military? So i like got to come down to the board. He goes, Tony, I'll be there. He goes, we'll do it. Well, listen to this. Cut 33. When I try to be part of uh, this uh, El Paso uh, visit, which I represent El Paso, I represent 50, uh, nearly 50 percent of the southern border. The White House told me I wasn't I wasn't able to be part of it. What, what does that mean? That means that means that Democrats are using this as a polit. They think this is a political challenge, not a policy challenge. Clearly, the, you know, you see these images a couple of weeks ago of hundreds of people in a cell. That's not a political challenge. That is a policy challenge. He's exasperated by it. And plus, he broke his word to his face yeah uh and the last words he said there is perfect and should be the lead on every story about this this is not a political problem this is a policy problem and until we get the proper p in perspective here then we're going to continue this. and that's been the immigration issue mm-hmm. republicans have got to step up to the plate with policy on this as well from closing it and then what do we do with the rest but democrats have also got to step up and realize this is not political right this is policy all right uh, congressman collins a couple more minutes when we come back we'll take your calls and maybe have the uh, the congressman weigh in on Prince Harry. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm only kidding. <laughs> Coming to you on a need-to-know basis, because, man, do you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. So it looks like uh, Doug Collins with us a few more minutes. It looks like Joe Biden is all in on 2024. You know who else is all in besides President uh, Trump? Uh, no one. No one. <laughs> uh, so Chris Christie weighed in uh, about this, uh, Doug, and here's what he said with George Stephanopoulos, Cup 55. Is there something to be gained, though, by being the first person out to challenge him? Heck no. I think that I think the exact opposite. <laughs> yeah. Donald Trump has nothing to do right now, right? And in part because he has no one to shoot at. He has no opponent. That's right. So who wants to be the first one in the pool to be the one who's the target? I think this is going to be a hang-around-the-rim enterprise. (laughs) Everyone's going to be waiting to see which way the rebound goes and whether they want to grab it or they don't want to grab it. And I think to go in early, huge political strategic mistake. What do you think, Doug? I agree with him completely. Stay away. (laughs) Stay away. I mean, if you have any ideas, I mean, I saw where John Bolton was thinking about it and some of these others like, Okay, really? Well, Mike Pompeo. Uh, Mike Pompeo. Like- They're all thinking about it. But again, we said this. I think you and I talked about this. It's so early in right. this process. I mean, no one is going to make up their mind right now. And, and I think you got to get through. And you know, it's on you know screens here. You got the governors getting sworn in today all over the state. You got you know, DeSantis was last week. The legislators are kicking up in most of these states. I think it'll be late spring. Before you actually see, he anything. also went on to say that he thinks seven or eight people, not that big a field. Remember, we had two stage pulls of people. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I don't think it'll be very many because one, there's an understanding that there is a there's definitely a pecking order right now. It's Trump and DeSantis is the top of everybody's list. That doesn't mean that they'll end, right. you know, end up there. But you know, remember Scott Walker, a good friend of mine. Remember Jeb Bush? <laughs> yeah, Jeb Bush, all there. But you know, so it's got you got to say, okay, where's my lane? You know, are they feeling? DeSantis would fall out. They feel like Trump would fall down. What's the lane for me to get there? And they want to see the investigations, where the investigations go. Probably so. Right. And yeah. you've got a legal background, right? Yeah. Is, if you were Trump, from what you know, what investigation should worry you the most? At this point, from a from his perspective of running for office, I think you have to consider them all a problem. Even the Georgia election? All of them. Even problem. the Georgia I challenge you. Probably so. Yeah. I mean, because it's, it's still out there. I mean, and, and you have a... 
DA who spent a lot of time, a lot of money to come up with something. All right, Doug, uh, you're out of it. Aren't you glad? You <laughs> yeah. just sit back and watch. Uh, he'll be on Outnumbered on Fox News Channel at the top of the hour. Doug, always great to have you on. Glad to be here. All right, keep it here. The Brian Kilmeade Show continues. News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Congressman Ryan Zinke standing by. Yes, he's back in Congress, former Secretary of the Interior and former Navy SEAL, retired in, uh, uh, retired Navy SEAL, I should say, Interior from 2017 to 2019. Then a little bit later, if you want to know what's going on anywhere in Central and South America, go to Wall Street Journal's Mary Anastasio O'Grady. Uh, she is going to be covering the America's Conference, the Three Amigos Conference, which is between President Obrador, Trudeau, and President Biden. In the backdrop of that, listen to this. You know, El Chapo famously got out of prison, now in jail forever, thankfully, but his son just as bad. He was arrested, and since that time, the cartels are blowing up everything they can. Uh, I don't know how safe it is going to be for this conference. They are as powerful in some cases as the government itself. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. None of anything that I've written and anything I've included is ever intended to hurt my family. Oops, they did. (laughs) Harry Speaks writes and releases his book, The Firm, Stays Silent. The allegations about his family, racism, and the press are devastating. He even alienated himself with the military after he exposed his days at war and how many kills he allegedly got. I'll give you my take. Number two. The Biden administration does not want America to see the chaos that the Biden administration's policies uh, have imposed. He needs to talk to the thousands of Texans who live on the border whose lives have been destroyed by Joe Biden's policies. No joke. Finally, on his agenda, the border, the president spends three hours in a sanitized El Paso. What did he see? What did he hear? What will he say at the summit of the Americas today? Republicans expect nothing and be prepared to do everything and anything it takes to seal the border. Number one. But I do want to especially thank uh, President Trump. I don't think you should doubt, anybody should doubt his influence. He was with me from the beginning. Somebody wrote the doubt of whether he was there, and he was all in. Wow, five days, 15 ballots, and finally Kevin McCarthy becomes Speaker of the House. Now that he got the job, he now has to do the job. The first hurdle is getting his entire conference to accept the rules and the deal he cut. The question is, are Republicans stronger or weaker after this debate? Congressman Ryan Zinke, welcome back. Welcome back to your old job. Welcome back to uh, the show. Well, you know, it's interesting. People say, is it congratulations or is condolences? I know. Probably a little bit of both. But, well, you know, the, the argument this week, yeah. uh, unfortunately, was in, in front of the world. It really didn't have to do anything about policy, didn't have to do anything. And really, the rules remain virtually unchanged. 
So a lot of it was positioning. It's really not about, about conservatives versus moderate because the conservatives that were behind Kevin and, you know, included obviously Jim Jordan, most of the members of the Freedom Caucus, a lot of founding members of the Freedom Caucus. So to a degree, it was a lot of grandstanding. There was some fundraising on it. Uh, you know, there was asking for, for personal favors. Well, we're through that. So we've, we've managed to muddle through. Uh, you can't have snipers inside the perimeter. So it looks like everyone is uh, circling the wagons and shooting out now. Now the next next phase is, is the rules. Uh, again, the, the rules are virtually unchanged. It's really a question now whether whether Republicans can govern. And I, I believe uh, in my heart and that we'll coalesce together because the consequence of, of being separate uh, would mean failure. I mean, there, right. there's no check on the administration unless we get to business. Uh, well, that's true. Here's Hakeem Jeffries, what he thinks is going to happen, cut two. Well, our general concern uh, is that the dysfunction that was historic that we saw this week uh, is not at an end. It's just the beginning. And while the Congress was held captive this particular time, uh, what is going to be a problem is if the American people will be held captive over the next two years to the extreme MAGA Republican agenda that apparently has been negotiated into the House rules and the functioning of the Congress. He believes the Freedom Caucus is the MAGA agenda. Well, you know, when, when President Trump obviously has a different position, when Jim Jordan has a position, when when Scott and, again, a number of conservatives have a different position, what you're looking at is, is a few. And for many of these few, it was grandstanding. There, there was some fundraising on it. But, again, we're through that. And, and, and there's a saleness in the, the saying in the seals, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So, so Kevin McCarthy, you know, muddled through. He got through, I, I think, to the degree, as long as everyone keeps their word. Because we're going back to regular order. I don't think anyone in the Republican caucus wants to see this excessive spending and continuing resolutions and this nonsense of omnibuses. So we're going back to regular order. It, it will be painful along the way. But if everyone everyone holds their word, then we'll get things done. And believe me, there's a lot to do. I know. The only check on this administration is, is the House. We're the, the House of Representatives is the last line of freedom, Brian. And, and we need to be unified in order to have have the defense uh, to check this administration. Well, speaking of defense, uh, it looks like there's some talk about cutting defense or not increasing it. Congressman Tony Gonzalez, like you, who spent years in the military, the Republican from Texas, said this, cut 14. This uh, has a proposed billions of dollar uh, cut to defense, which I think is a horrible idea. When you have uh, aggressive uh, Russia in Ukraine, you've got a growing threat of China in the Pacific. You know, I'm going to visit Taiwan here in a couple weeks. How am I going to look at our allies in the eye and say, I need you to increase your defense budget, Mm -hmm. but yet America is going to decrease ours? Listen, I get debt, uh, but if Republicans are going to open up with cutting defense, are you kidding well, and, and, and look, you can't balance the budget on the discretionary side because defense and interior, you know, and the discretionary makes up about 28 percent of the budget. You can't balance the budget unless you go to the both sides of the equation. And on defense, Brian, you know, I'm pro-defense. I, I, I was a Navy SEAL. I was commander at SEAL Team 6. But look, there's 800,000 DOD employees. So defense, you know, we need to we need to make sure that the waste is cut out of defense, expedite the the acquisition process. I mean, the F-35, Brian, it took 17 years from drawing to fielding an F-35, and technology is rolling over every four years. 
So we need to make sure that, that we look at the future of, of what, what the force and, and battlefields of the future would look like. We're out of position in the Pacific. No, but, but Congressman, you're 100 percent right. We also need to. Yeah, we need to look at the spending, too, and, and, and let's cut the waste. Let's expedite and give the commanders in the defense you know, more say on, on the equipment that they, they're responsible to fight with. Uh, but, but the whole R&D and the next generation and what we're looking at now, the stuff that we don't have that we need to invent that need to be financed, you got to get your greatest minds in that. See, I think it's two conversations. I think a conversation is the budget, and the other conversation is what's happening with the money. And I don't think they should be linked. I think you got to say these are some of the parameters that come with it. You're going to have to cut so many such in officers. It's got to go to certain departments. But you remember well, what happened it, when you guys went on austerity? Everybody suffered. Well, you need, you need maturity to look at when you have 800,000 civilians. Yeah, that, that's larger than the standing United States Army. So we do need to reconfigure. Probably need to go through a new defense reorganization act. Sure. Because because the last time we did it was Reagan. You know the world's changed. China has become more of a threat. We're out of position in the Pacific again. And what we're seeing in the battlefield today, you are absolutely right. It's introduction of UAVs, drones yeah. are are taking a much more significant. And we're behind in that area. We should be looking at advanced drones, advanced you know uh, AI platforms. Uh, swarm drones. This is the battlefield of the future. And once again, I, I think the acquisition process it makes it slow, too slow, where whatever comes out is probably overcost, delayed, and underwhelming. And put the commanders back in charge. You know, they got to fight with equipment. The, the troops in the front line always win. And let's give a little more voice to the front line and the troops to get the equipment they need quickly. What, what conferences, uh, committees you looking to be on? Well, you know, I think appropriations is probably you know good because the next next two years we're not going to get a lot of policy through, Brian. But what we can do is we can check the budget and we can hold firm on the budget until there's a plan. Uh, I, I think a ten-year balance the budget, but you got to do it on both sides. You got to open up on both sides of the budget. You can't pay Americans, you know, not to work, and we are. That uh, we need to address the homelessness. We need to address the mental health in this country. We have a lot of problems, but you got to open up both sides. Of the budget, and you just can't balance the budget on the back of defense or or one of the departments because you just can't get there when the discretionary is twenty eight percent of the budget. Understood. So, appropriation act doesn't do anything on homeland or or armed services. Well, you know, I, I, you know, I'm I'm a team player, so I will, I will fit where they need some help. Uh, you know, I, I would think appropriations, foreign affairs is a mess. You know, we're, we we when, when America doesn't lead, by the way, there's no one else that's going to take our place. Except China, and I, I, I don't, I don't think the the free right. world uh, would like a China centric, you know, leadership. So there's a lot to do, but we have, you know, and and we have good members of Congress, you know, and and I'm hoping this debate and the and the grandstanding settles down to the hard work, because when you go back to regular order, I mean, just as an example, when I was in before, we passed about 550 bills. Now, the Senate was kind enough to pick up about 40, but passing 550 bills, now you're going to go to regular orders, single single title, that's a lot of work, and we're already behind. So, you know, it, it, I, I was sent, you know, and, and elected to get things done. I wasn't elected to be a soundbite. 
I'm going to put my head down and do what I can to save this country, but it's going to take a lot of work, and everyone should recognize, look, we are we have the majority in the House, but we are a minority in the government. We don't have control of the Senate. We don't have control of the administration. So in order to be effective, we got to unify in a single voice. That voice is right. Kevin McCarthy. Everyone has a say, but everyone doesn't have the final say. Congressman Wright, but after last week, no one thinks that, so let's see if the, this week is better. But uh, I, found, I found it fascinating. Uh, I love that the C-SPAN cameras were unregulated, so they're able to go everywhere. So, you know, you're able to see you, everybody else, maneuver back and forth, the conversations. Uh, we kind of liked it. It's almost as if you could put a mic when the pitcher uh, and catcher speak and the manager comes out. You always say to yourself in baseball, I wonder what they're saying. We found out last week. Basically, what we were well, saying. There was a, there was a case. What well, there, there was some heroic efforts, and I'll tell you one was was Wesley Hunt, the freshman from Texas. Now, his wife had a premature child. Uh, they're both in, in in medical, and he came back. He came back to vote, and and some of it, the undertone was, if he came back back to vote and is willing to sacrifice that, then look, you hold your part of the deal, and and ultimately wow, I didn't know they that. did. Yeah, and and uh, you know, great great American, and Buck came back. So there was a lot of of undertone of of what had happened, but you know, we're through that. So that's 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 not looking the past. Let's look in the future. We have the rules package today. I'm still Reagan optimistic. You know, optimistic. Look, we're going to do the right thing. It took us a little while to get there, uh, but if everyone holds their truth. If everyone holds their word, then we'll get things done. All right. I want you to hear, you're not in on the investigations, but you're on the other side of them. They were investigating you, Trump, anybody to do with the Trump administration. So now that you guys, the House is back in uh, Republican hands, listen to this question from Chuck Todd. Cut 25. Let me ask you this. You're going to do a lot of oversight. You're going to have a lot of subpoenas. Many people look at what you're doing and they see that it, it, it looks more partisan than professional. Um, Tell me wh- how you're going to try to departisanize an investigation, or do you expect it to be partisan? Well, with all due respect, Chuck, I, I disagree with that. I think the only people that see this as a partisan investigation are the media and the hardcore Democrats. Look, uh, at the same moment that the Democrats on the Ways and Means Committee released Donald Trump's taxes, uh, they then, moments later, turned around and said, uh, Comer's investigation of the Biden family influence peddling is a revenge hearing. I mean, are you kidding me? (laughs) The questions are so biased. It's so ridiculous. That's James Comer, obviously, going to be in charge of that. So as part of you saying, I want them to feel some of the pressure that you guys felt. Well, there's no doubt that law enforcement agencies were weaponized. I mean, I think I went through 18 investigations, and by the way, they all concluded the same: no, no rules broken, no laws broken, yeah. did everything right. But it was harassment because, you know, in my case, it was the Department of Interior AG or IG's office, which which is the same department you're trying to reform, right? So the, the, these guys, and and what I learned is this: you have the media. You have the deep state, which remember, 94% of D.C. voted for Biden. So most of the the, the departments are filled uh, with with bias, and, and and then of course you have the Democratic Party. There is no difference. You're looking at the same thing on a different angle. There's no difference. 
So investigations, we need to investigate. We need to have transparency. I don't want to go on fishing expeditions. Uh, we, we know about the Biden-Hunter uh, laptop. We know the corruption within the FBI. We know the corruption within the IG's office. We need to be make sure that we're transparent. Uh, but I don't, I don't think we should go on, on fishing expeditions and for vengeance. I think the American people will need to know that, look, our government no, I hear you. Swayed, swayed over, and, and, and we need to do the right thing. And the government should be doing the right thing because ultimately the government works for the people and not the other way around. Very calm, cool, and collected. That's why you are a special, uh, a special operator. Um, Kev, uh, Ryan Zinke, thanks so much. Congressman, I'm so glad you're back in action, and I, we could call well, on you I- for a resource for the show. And I'm going to hold you. You come out to Montana. There's lots to do out there with the farm bills coming up. It's really cold right now, isn't it? Isn't it really cold? Oh, it is. Well, I would not recommend unless you ski. Let's <laughs> no. wait until the summer. Let's do a fish and float and, and uh, bring your family out and uh, and be a part of the Yellowstone uh, adventure, right? I'm going to go to Dick's Sporting Goods and get myself a fishing outfit for today when I'm done. Today, I'm just going to wait for the Zinke family to call me. <laughs> all right, Congressman, okay. thanks so much. You just got to give me the size of your hat, and we'll get you one. There that's, you go. <laughs> that's all. All right, thank you. I have a very big head. Thank you. Uh, listen, when we come back, I'm going to take some calls in the bottom of the hour inside the Three Amigos Summit. A big day, big hour. Don't move. Brian Kilmeade Show. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first on the Brian Kilmeade Show. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. I spent a lot of time in Kiev on accountability. And in fact, sitting across from President Zelensky, just as you and I are, I asked him point blank, what's the status of accountability? If there's a scandal, it's going to kill our ability to support you. He understands that. And he went on to say, uh, and that is, Senator... uh, Senator King of Maine, an independent. And he went over there to meet with uh, Zelensky. And I am concerned with the Republican caucuses push among uh, among some conservatives that this is not worth it, that this fight is not our fight, and we we can't worry about it, and we have too much money to waste it here. One thing has nothing to do with the other, and we have to give these guys what they need to win because the ramifications would be just devastating. Uh, for our future, if we allow the Russians to even pull off what they think is a face-saving victory. It's bad news for all the Baltic states. It's bad news for Poland. It's bad news for Hungary. It's bad news uh, for Moldova right away. Terrible news for Georgia, what's left. But if you can give them the loss, expose them as the hollow giant that they are, you can not only work your way to get back those provinces from Georgia, eventually get back Crimea and force a change over there. So listen, he went on to say this. They have a Pentagon inspector general making sure those weapons go to the right places. And they hired Deloitte, an esteemed accounting firm, to make sure that everyone is transparent about where the money is. Because they said to Zelensky, I can't protect you. If there turns out to be a scandal with American money, Americans will pull back and say, not anymore. And he gets it. He understands his culture. The more you listen, 
the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. The Biden administration does not want America to see the chaos that the Biden administration's policies uh, have imposed. What Biden really needs to do, he needs to talk to the thousands of Texans who live on the border, whose lives have been destroyed by Joe Biden's policies. But he's not going to talk to anybody like that. He's going to get a candy-coated version of what's going on down there uh, and not know the information that he really needs to understand uh, so that he can fix this. And it's cost Texas billions of dollars uh, to do their the Texas force out there because the government's not doing their job. And Mayorkas comes back and says that uh, Texas is acting outside the law. That is Governor Greg Abbott talking about the president's visit to El Paso yesterday. He's now in Mexico City. Mary Anastasio O'Grady joins us now. She writes for the America's Weekly column on politics, economics, and business in Latin America and Canada that appears every Monday today in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, uh, Mary, great to hear from you again. Thanks so much for calling. How important is this summit to Canada, Mexico, and the U.S.? Hi, Brian. Good afternoon. Um, I don't see it as that big a deal. I mean, usually the three uh, leaders of these North American countries meet once a year in a North American summit. Um, of course, the pandemic disrupted that a little bit. So it was Mexico's turn to host this normal annual meeting. And that's why the three leaders are there. Um, you know, there are big topics on the table, uh, immigration and trade, I think, being being the two big ones. Um, but I don't really expect very much will come out of it. I mean, as you've pointed out, a lot of the problem with immigration uh, has to do with the political will on the part of the Biden administration and uh, Homeland Security Chief uh, Mayorkas has not, um, you know, come up with a policy that basically can turn migrants away. So migrants consider the border open and uh, they keep coming, um, which, of course, you know, our families did the same and people want to do because the U.S. is a great place to live with opportunity and and a rule of law and and um, and, and more safety than a lot of these people experience. But but, you know, there has to be an orderly system. And if the Biden administration doesn't have the political will to do that, I don't think a summit in Mexico is going to change very much. Right. So what do you think was accomplished with the president's visit to El Paso? It seemed to be a very sanitized version. Glad to see him there. But wasn't exactly as if it was a slice of life on the border. Yeah, that was weird. I mean, because I was wondering if if uh, anyone in the administration actually thinks that Americans are going to believe this, like you say, sort of sanitized version of what's going on there. I mean, day in and day out in our living rooms, we're seeing the reality there and uh, not just for the people who live on the border, but the terrible hardship that uh, the migrants themselves experience because of the human trafficking and, you know, they, they, they're very desperate. And, um, and I think a lot of these countries, as I wrote in my column today, have weaponized that desperation against the U.S. And, um, you know, the last one to figure it out, apparently, is going to be the Biden administration. Right. So you say using weapons, uh, these uh, migrants as weapons, something that Castro perfected and his successors are doing the same thing. How? Yeah, well, you know, Castro's still doing it, but I decided to focus on Venezuela today because they're sort of a new actor. I, I referenced a political science professor from Tufts University called Kelly Greenhill, 
she wrote a book in 2010, and I referenced an essay she wrote in 2016 about how governments, enemies of the West, enemies of modern liberal democracies, um, will basically weaponize mass um, uh, movements of, of humanity to destabilize and and undercut uh, their uh, liberal, their 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 democratic adversaries. And, um, you know, as as uh, Professor Greenhill says in her essay that I cited today, she says, you know, everybody knows it would be absurd for Cuba or Venezuela to think they could invade the United States militarily. But this is another way of doing it. This is really an act of war. And in the case of Venezuela, uh, I'm citing a uh, an NGO called the Center for Secure Free Society that's done a lot of research on this topic. And they went to the border and interviewed Venezuelans, and the Venezuelans told them that they had bought travel packages in Venezuela from travel agencies with links to the regime. And those travel packages were flights to Mexico, documents necessary to get into Mexico, and uh, connections with human traffickers that would take them on the ground once they landed in Mexico up to the border. Um, so, you know, that is an example of a country actually weaponizing, as Castro did with the rafters, and I mentioned that in my column, and the Cubans continue to do it. But but this is this is a very clear-cut case. of it. And, you know, we, we sit back and we say, wow, look at all the Venezuelans that came to the border in the last two years. How did they do that? And, you know, most of us think, well, you know, probably a lot of them came with just sheer grit through the Darien yeah. jungle and the Panama. But I think that there's evidence emerging that Venezuela is actually helping that flow because, again, they are delighted to see this sort of overwhelming uh, mass of humanity that the U.S. can't handle. And then eventually we get what what Joe Biden just did, which say, OK, well, we'll give 30,000 visas a month to Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua. They're all in this together. And Haiti, and I'm not sure exactly where Haiti is politically, but I'm sure there are a lot of very desperate Haitians who can be weaponized. So uh, he playing, he's playing into it to say you can stay. But for people who say, why is it in a country's advantage to get rid of their own citizens? Well, I would think that what's going on in Venezuela is that, number one, a lot of the people who leave are dissidents. They're opponents of, of the regime. So they're happy to get rid of them. You know, the Cuban regime has long uh, exiled political prisoners. They keep them in prison for a long time. And finally, they say to them, OK, you can get out, but you have to leave the country. So that's that's one reason. But another reason is once the Venezuelans get here, um, you know, they go to work. I mean, most of these people want to work. And um, so they work, they earn dollars, the Cubans the same way, they earn dollars, and they send remittances back to their families. So for a lot of countries in Latin America, dollar remittances are very important. Now, I'm not against dollar remittances. I think it's the best kind of aid because it's from one family to the other. There's no government intervention of bilateral aid, and people are earning this money. So I'm all in favor of that. But um, you know, the reason why, like, the Cubans want to do it is they don't want to change the structure of the economy. They don't want to allow a competition. It's a gangster government that basically owns the economy. But they need dollars. And the only thing they export that has any value are human beings. So they export the human beings, they collect the dollars, and that helps uh, keep the, the regime afloat.
So I would say in terms of what's going on in Mexico, they arrested El Chapo's uh, uh, El Chapo's son. Uh, and since that time, the cartels have declared almost war- open warfare on the government. Here's what Congressman Mike Waltz says is going on there. Cut 36. The Mexican army sent battalions against them. They killed over uh, killed or wounded over 50 Mexican soldiers. Uh, And I want to be clear, I'm not talking about U.S. troops, but I'm talking about cyber, drones, intelligence assets, naval assets. We've done this before. You remember back in the 80s when the cartels in Colombia were shooting down planes, killing members of Congress, about to take over the entire Colombian government. We had planned Colombia then. We had special operators training not in combat, but providing those military assets that we need because these are paramilitary entities. So this is, can you give us an idea of how dangerous this is this weekend or today? Yeah, it's pretty bad in Mexico. But I I mean, I think one of the things that that speaker is missing is the history of uh, Mexican-U.S. relations. I mean, the U.S. has never trusted the Mexican military. The Mexican military has never trusted the U.S. So you had a relationship between the U.S. and Colombia that was enormously different than what you have between the U.S. and Mexico. And now, even more so now, because we have a president uh, who is an ally of of the of many of our enemies in the region, um, so it's much harder for the U.S. military. I mean, you know, remember that the <laughs> when the U.S. military went to Mexico, it didn't have a good ending for Mexico. They lost territory. Um, so the the U.S. military is not going to be invited into Mexico to you know do this. There, there has been some limited DEA and so forth work in Mexico over the years, but it's a much more difficult relationship to manage. That's the first thing. The second thing is. And I I know this is not popular with a lot of people on the right, but I really think that the U.S. has to acknowledge that the drug cartels are a demand problem. We have been trying for 70 years to stop the flow of drugs into this country as a way of ending drug abuse. And it doesn't work because Uh, as long as you have demand for drugs. But the fentanyl is a whole new level. Just real quick on Brazil. Everyone keeps saying, well, it's unbelievable this Bolsonaro is like Trump and we got to be against Bolsonaro. When with this this guy that's president of Brazil right now is a convicted criminal that got out on a technicality that is his idol is Fidel Castro. We shouldn't be. I think we got mixed up the good guys and bad guys in this situation. Well, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that Lula's release from jail is really scandalous. However, uh, he he did run and he did win. And I, I think it was it a legitimate it election do, from what you could tell the election itself, I think, was OK. I mean, I think the vote count itself was fine. I think the the big problems during that election were the Supreme Court trying to uh, gag the the dissident voices uh, on the press in Twitter and social media Amazing. and so forth and the release of Lula in the first place. But the election itself, I think, was 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 pretty much fair and 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 run okay. I mean, right now it doesn't do anybody any good to see this kind of thing that we saw in in Brazil yesterday. It should be totally condemned by everybody. I mean, we do politics because we don't want to go to war with each other. And, you know, the pressure should be on Lula to respect the democracy as much as the opposition to respect the democracy. Where do you think it's heading? Is it is it put down? Uh, well, you know, there's going to be this simmering discontent, but I think what will really matter is the voices. The two things will matter. 
again, Lula has to respect the civil liberties of his opponents, and he has to get the Supreme Court to do the same thing. Those are two things that are in question. And then on the right, I mean, you have many powerful voices, like, for example, the governor of Sao Paulo. Sao Paulo is a huge, very powerful industrial and farming state. And the governor is is the former infrastructure minister for uh, Bolsonaro. He's a, he's a center-right guy, and he has come out and condemned this, as has the governor of Minas Gerais, who's also a mm-hmm. very free market guy. So it'll be very important that the, the, the sane people on the right stand up and say, you know, no more violence. We have to respect, um, you know, the the authority of, of the rule of law, but but also demand that uh, free speech and civil liberties mm-hmm. are respected by the government. So uh, Mary Anastasia O'Grady uh, with The Wall Street Journal. Nobody knows more about this region than you. It's your beat. Mary, thanks so much. Thank you, Brian. Have a great day. You got Thanks it. for having me. No, no okay. problem. Love it. one 866 I'll come back. I'll open up the phones, and we'll finish with a flurry. You'll listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. In your interview with Oprah, probably one of the the most explosive claims came from Megan, which was that a member of the royal family wondered how dark your child's skin would be. That wasn't brought up in Netflix or in the book. Why? The way the British press reacted to that was fairly typical. There was like a hunt for the raw racist. Neither of us believe that that comment or that experience or that opinion was based in racism. Unconscious bias, yes. But I think that you speak to the majority, maybe not all, but the majority of mixed-race couples around the world, that the white side of the family would wonder whether talking openly about it or amongst themselves what the kids are going to look like. The key word here was concern as opposed to curiosity. But the way that the British press, what they turned it into was... Not what it, not what it was. But you stand by that that happened, but you just didn't feel the need to. No, but what else did I say at the end of at the, uh, within the Oprah interview? That you would not discuss it further. Exactly. But you put it in the book. So how dare you put it in the book and not discuss it? Or she said it wasn't in the book. It wasn't in the book, but he was saying, "Oh, it wasn't in the book, but you mentioned it in the Oprah interview." And right. he's like, "Oh, but it didn't matter." And I won't discuss it. All right. So here is the Oprah interview. What he said. What is particularly striking is what Megan shared with us earlier, is that no one wants to admit that there's anything about race or that race has played a role in the trolling and the vitriol. And yet, Megan shared with us that there was a conversation with you about Archie's skin tone. Mm -hmm. What was that conversation? That conversation... I am never going to share. Um, but at the time, at the time it was awkward. I was a bit shocked. Um, can you can you tell us what the question was? No, I don't. I'm not comfortable sharing that. Okay. Um, but that was that was right at the beginning, right? Um, like, what will the baby look like? Yeah. What will the kids look like? Yeah. What will yeah. the kids look like? But um, that was right at the beginning when she wasn't going to get security, when members of my family were suggesting that she carries on acting because there's not enough money to pay for her and all this sort of stuff. Like, there was some real obvious signs before we even got married that this was going to be really hard. 
So it sounds like he was almost ready to walk it back when he was saying it, and she couldn't believe that he was saying it so casually. And again, the way didn't she just say that in talking to Megan before? Yeah, if you want, that's cut forty-four. We can listen. It's quick. Okay. So we have in tandem the conversation of he won't be given security. He's not going to be given a title, and also concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he's born. So. That caused the biggest uproar, of course. It did, but it's also, I feel like, a good example of her sort of making it a little bit more dramatic than he made it. And right. it became this big... And you know what he said quickly? Unconscious bias, perhaps. Unconscious bias, perhaps. Oh, yeah. It's throughout that whole right. interview. But then again, I think I seem to remember them traveling around, and now all of a sudden there was some uproar in some of the islands in which they still control about racism. You know, in the Caribbean is almost all black... Uh, residents who are mostly African or mostly Caribbean Americans who are uh, who have dark skin, uh, black skin, and they were upset about that and accusing racism of the family and going back hundreds of years and saying things. This is their tradition, so it really rippled through the, all their provinces. But that wasn't that the example sort of Harry was making in that the family never pushed back when the press was having all those headlines about like colonialism and things like that. And he thought their silence spoke volumes. Right. Right. That's what he took from it. But but is it but they're going to stay silent now. Yes. That is their thing to stay silent. But they, what he seems to be saying is they'll get back at him through their sources in the media. Things will just pop up, according to a source inside uh, the palace. But you know what? This is going to be interesting for a week or two. But overall, I think I saw the stats. He was 82% approval rating when, uh, when he was getting married to Megan. 82% approval rating. Now it's about 20. And, and now he's going he's gonna to act like he's the outcast and what about me? But even if it's 100% the truth and the, uh, his perceived truth or actual truth, think about the next day. What is, your, what is your goal? Is it just to make money? Then I get it. But if it's not just to make money and you're thinking about a future with the Royal and go back to your family, you blew it. You totally blew it. Brian Kilmeade Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.